All right, joining me now, special guest, Mr. Mike Green. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Jeff? I'm great. I can't. I, I thank you very much for joining. This is one I've been looking forward to for quite a while here. Having a discussion with you is like really diving deep, which is what something. It's something that uh, Eurodollar University members and fans and viewers really want to get into. And there, are, there are so many topics that we could dive into here today that I don't even know where. Where do you, where would you think you even want to begin here? Well, you know, you know, I think the thing that catches my attention the most and honestly what i've gotten wrong this year and i've gotten a lot of things wrong um although i think it, you know ironically less on the macro picture than on many of the behaviors in the market which is you know always the wrong order of things um but kind of the most important thing that that is that is hitting me is is this interesting phenomenon right now where people seem to have a relatively high conviction that somehow or another equities are lower risk than bonds, right? That we can have all sorts of crazy um, behavior and risks in bonds. We can have near failed auctions with five you know, point tails in the 30s and somehow or another that equity markets should be shrugging that off. And um, to me, this is actually, unfortunately, a byproduct of increasingly rigid investment mandates. And so if I think about the behaviors that I'm watching in markets, unfortunately, it serves to reinforce a lot of my theories around the dynamics of passive or target date funds or model portfolios that are built around historical return profiles and have no mechanism for really incorporating current information, right? So just to orient people on what I mean by that, if you're an investor in a target date fund, the allocation between bonds and equities is determined by your age. It has nothing to do with the relative attractiveness of the two asset classes because they are presumed to behave in a statistical fashion that is identical to however they behaved in the past, right? I mean, that's why the portfolio was built that way, et cetera. Model portfolios offer similar dynamics and we've just been overrun by portfolios that don't have the discretion to realistically look at what's happened to the world and say, hey, wait a second, 18 months ago, real long-term interest rates were near minus 1%. Today, real you know, long-term interest rates are near 2.5%. That sort of 350 basis point swing, while it may seem minor when you just talk about it as 3.5%, that is a radical change in long-term investment return profiles that should have led to a significant restructuring of portfolios. And crazily enough, we're just not seeing it. And so I'm, I'm, I'm forced to confront this reality that I think the vast majority of people actually don't even have the flexibility to evaluate this in their portfolios for an extended period of time, right? It's just gonna take time for the market to recognize that you can't treat corporate equities as senior in importance to risk-free, right? Uh, quote unquote risk. Well, Mike, Mike oh. is, is the risk there that, it, that the pressures are building up underneath instead of having a slow realization and reallocation throughout mm -hmm. portfolios that maybe it leads to the small little change where some people start reallocating and then all of a sudden everybody says, oh, I got to reallocate all at once. That's what it feels like to me, right? I mean, there's the language out there of T-bill and chill, right? You know, play <laughs> on Netflix and chill, right? Yeah. Which is this idea that I can just buy the front of the curve. I can be very comfortable with my five plus percent yield. It's fantastic that this is being offered to me. By the way, I agree with a lot of that and actually own a significant quantity of T-bills or short-term tips myself. Um, but the, you know, the problem there is, of course, the reinvestment risk. 
And so if the Fed ultimately starts cutting interest rates, and there's all sorts of interesting angles around that that I would love to explore with you, then that scramble that you're highlighting could begin, right? I shared with you before the start of this program um, a recent announcement that just came out yesterday from IBM where they're changing their 401k plan to a defined benefit plan. Now, this feels insane, right? They're, they're converting from a 401k plan, which means they make contributions matching their employees to um, a, a you know defined contribution plan that accumulates in the employee name and you know is um, has been by far the most popular vehicle for people to invest in a long time, right? They actually just announced that they're switching to a cash balance defined benefit plan where they're offering a guaranteed return to their employees of effectively treasuries plus 2%. Um, that's actually not true, by the way, in the short term. So like the structure of this, of this is extraordinary, but I'll just cut to the chase and say all of it actually appears to be a way for IBM to issue bonds to its employees. And that actually- But they're I selling mean, it as guaranteed, you know, they're giving their employees guaranteed returns. This is terrific. You'll love it. Yep. Which, which is, by the way, exactly what an investment grade bond is, right? It's Or any bond for that matter. It's a guaranteed return. Guess what? You're going to love it. This goes a little step further, right? Because it actually does offer an element of guarantee to their employees. It's, you know, IBM has always been a pension innovator. So I think this is actually a really important one. But you know, they also, because they're moving to defined benefit, they now qualify for protection from the PBGC, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp, which by the way is already overburdened, but most people expect that there'll be funds added to the bailout if that ultimately is required. And so effectively what they've done is they've been able to issue IBM bonds obligations to their employees saying, we're going to offer you X return. There is no actual account. There's just a liability that you hold against IBM. And if for some reason IBM fails, then a reduced level of benefits is guaranteed by the PBGC, right? This is basically going cold turkey from plans that were heavily allocated to equities to plans that are 100% fixed income um, and you know, radically changes that allocation in a way that I've been kind of watching for, right? Um, this is telling you that IBM is probably having trouble or at least thinks they could have trouble in borrowing in the corporate market. This is a fantastic way to do so, right? Um, That's really the benefit from IBM's perspective, right? Is that IBM is essentially so. funding its liabilities by just making crap up. I mean, they're just basically writing it down on the balance sheet and saying, right. we promise to pay in the future and our employees are gonna be happy with our promise rather than pre-funding any liabilities. So from IBM's perspective, this is genius. This is, this is fantastic. Absolutely. I, 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 and, and again, IBM has been a pension uh, innovator, you know, an innovation always takes a, uh, it needs air quotes in finance, right? <laughs> but this to me seems like the, this, this seems like a really momentous event. Um, and so like, that's, you know, to me, this is one of these things that they happen quietly. Again, I described it to you. I remember in 2006, yeah. highlighting for my employers at the time, Canyon Partners, and saying, hey, this is weird. This small bank just failed in Pittsburgh, right? We haven't seen a bank failure in, you know, of, of this asset level in about, you know, 15 years. What do you guys think about it? And the immediate reaction was kind of like, well, that's kind of interesting, but I'm not really sure it's all that relevant. And of course, you know, then the events occur, right? These things tend the to happen yeah. in waves, right? Well, let's, let's, I mean, let's just to be clear here what, what you're, and you brought this up and it's, yep. I think, you, I think you're thinking the right way. 
As long as IBM doesn't get enough pushback from its employees and they can sell this type of, of, of retirement benefit plan, then other companies are going to take notice and they're going to say, I want to do that too, because when you stop and think about what they're attempting here, and of course, there's a couple, I think, technical hurdles, but I'm sure they've already thought about them and worked them out if they're already announcing yeah. this, then other companies start doing it. Mike, as you were pointing out, again, we were talking about this before, what this potentially means is that this entire retirement industry suddenly doesn't necessarily put all of its eggs in the stock market basket. Suddenly, yep. retirement plans are not about the S&P 500 and balance plans and all the other stuff. Now it goes back and the pendulum swings the other way, where companies are funding everything with future liabilities that have nothing to do with equities. Yes, I think that's unfortunately the correct interpretation of it. And again, you know, we've seen throughout this year, companies struggle with the ability to raise funds. This would be harder to pull off in a highly levered entity because the, it would be somewhat transparent, although IBM has significant leverage. Um, and I think you're right. The pushback from the employees is one of the key dynamics they have to consider. Of course, this is being announced, right? I'm, you know, I, I have the expression, why are you reading this now? Um, <laughs> you're also reading right now that, you know, headlines saying that the great resignation, the turnover in employees has now slowed to a trickle and employers are trying to figure out how to get employees to quit, right? Um, the quit rate has collapsed as people confront potential economic uncertainty. And so like, what a perfect time to introduce this. Oh, you, you, you really don't like the plan? I'll tell you what, why don't you quit? Right. Yeah. Um, it's like the pricing power, the, the power yeah. of the relationship has flipped to the employers from employees and it's flipped 100%. dramatically. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that make sense about this. Yes. IBM is, you know, a pretty troubled business these days. It, it, maybe, maybe people don't think of it that way, but IBM is not doing really all that well. The macroeconomic environment, which we can talk about a lot, too. If you look at the, the fundamentals or the, the, the balance sheet uh, benefits to doing something like this, I mean, it makes perfect sense as well as you just said, the timing. Yeah. Um, with the job market the way it is, employees are going to shut up and take it because they'll, they want the paycheck at this point. 100%. And it'll be sold as, hey, we're guaranteeing you something. And, right. You, you know, the, the simple You'll reality love is it. this is great. How could you go wrong here? Exactly. If the employees wanted this liability, they could very easily have obtained it by simply using their, you know, a self-directed retirement account to go buy IBM bonds. It's the exact <laughs> same transaction. Yeah. Right? But that wouldn't benefit IBM the same way. It would not necessarily benefit IBM the same way. That is correct. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, to me, this is the start, right? This is effectively, you know, the, the, the thaw is coming. We've seen all sorts of behavior that has occurred because the US government has had to issue significantly greater coupons. That has led to, you know, demand has not responded nearly as quickly as supply has ramped up. That's created conditions like we saw today is uh, November 10th, right? On November 9th, we saw a wide tail on 30-year bonds coming from the, the US Treasury you know, all that's telling you is, is that people are doing other things with their money yet right now, right? They haven't effectively decided, oh my gosh, we got to go buy US government bonds above all else. Um, this is telling you that trickle is starting to turn, you know, that that demand story is going to start to turn. That That is to me kind of the, you know, the most important thing that I've, that I've seen in in fairly recent memory. I'll probably be writing about this this weekend. 
Yeah. And so, it, well, the implication, I mean, there's short run implications as well as long term implications. Yeah. And I think let's let's talk about stocks for a minute here, because yeah. the stock market as a whole seems to be stuck in this no man's land. I mean, we're coming up on two years where the S&P 500 has basically gone nowhere. And you have to wonder, did the market pile all of its post pandemic returns into that short space in the initial period and sort of just waiting over the last next couple of years for either that bet to pay off or that bet to be reversed and still no verdict on, on which way it goes? Well, you know, I, I, when we say the stock market, right, it, it's, it's very tempting to say the stock market, right, instead of um, the individual components of it. And again, a lot of my work is around the implications of when people buy um, passive vehicles, in particular things like total market indices or the S&P 500 or the Qs, et cetera they all carry different flavors to it, right? And so imagine a scenario where people go out and buy the total market index because they're invested in a Vanguard target date fund that plows somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% of the assets into a, um, you know, into the Vanguard total market index. That Vanguard total market index has somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,200 stocks. It buys in proportion to the float adjusted market capitalization. That means that for every dollar that's going in, somewhere around six and a half to seven cents is going to be going to Apple, six and a half to seven cents is going to be going to Microsoft, et cetera, right? Those seem like really small numbers, but when you think about liquidity in markets, liquidity in markets doesn't scale with market cap. And understanding why is really important. This is, you know, kind of the deep dive you know, euro dollar university sort of stuff that you guys go through all the time on the rates market. But remember how market making works in equities, right? A market maker has to decide that they're going to put up capital in order to facilitate a liquid market in an underlying security, right? They're going to buy at the, um, they're going to buy, you know, when you're trying to sell, they're going to sell when you're trying to buy, they're going to try to capture that spread. The profitability of that investment is a function of how much capital do I have to put up, how frequently do shares trade hands, right? And how volatile is the stock effectively? How wide is that bid ask spread, right? When I think about something like Apple or Microsoft, which is give or take a hundred times larger than the smallest stocks in the S&P 500 and somewhere around 10,000 times larger than the smallest stocks in the total market index, there, I can't, as a market maker, put up 10,000 times or 100 times as much capital to make markets in Apple or IBM or Microsoft, right? It's just the volumes are not 100 times higher. The bid ask tends to be even narrower. And so if anything, what I end up doing is shortchanging the capital that gets put to the largest stocks because I need to effectively raise my return on capital by allowing them to exhibit greater volatility, right? Um, and so what that means is when Vanguard goes to put those types of sums, those much larger sums into the largest stocks, it actually causes them to be affected most by this phenomenon. It's not the tiniest stocks. We do see that um, when something enters the index. We see all sorts of crazy behavior when things enter the index. Tesla in September of 2020, for example. Um, but overall, what we're actually looking at is a situation in which the largest stocks are the ones that are most systematically distorted to the upside. Right. And that, I think, is really the story of 2022, 2023 has been this systematic distortion as money has flowed out of active managers, out of hedge funds, out of those who are trying to add value by picking stocks and into vehicles that are basically just allocating on the basis of market cap 
it's led to or contributed to this distortion we have where the median stock now in the Russell 2000 is down 12%, right? I haven't looked at it today, but it's down 12%. While the NASDAQ's up 40% and the S&P is up somewhere in the neighborhood of 13, 14, right? The largest stocks are up by far the most, right? Um, it makes everybody, you know, effectively look at the market and go, what the heck is going on? And you can make all sorts of fundamental arguments about it, et cetera. But remember, there's also a recursive or a reflexivity component to it, because if Microsoft stock goes up a whole bunch, employees at Microsoft that have received stock options get paid more, they are less worried about getting higher compensation than other firms that are not benefiting from this, right? So it actually lowers Microsoft's costs. It also, because these are options, when you exercise the option, you actually have to pay the underlying to the company, right? This is a newly issued share. It's providing cash flow to these companies as well, which in an environment of increasingly scarce cash and higher interest rates is another benefit that accrues on a fundamental basis, right? And so you're seeing all this type of behavior that, you know, if you, um, if you treat it as purely mechanical as compared to insight-based, makes a heck of a lot more sense, right? People are sitting here, everybody I talk to in the stock market is like, you know, Apple has gone X growth. How could they be trading at 30 or 40 times earnings, right? Like they told us their X growth. Like, what, you know, what in the world is going on? And I think it actually is because the markets are behaving in this mechanical fashion. Is what's, what's leading the rotation though? Because if we're moving from active to passive, if, there's, if that's the underlying uh, rotation in, in funds, what do you think is causing that? Well, I think the simple answer is the same sort of thing that I talked about with IBM, right? The incentive structure is there for everybody to go into passive, whether that is um, because you're a registered investment advisor who is trying to avoid liability in the fiduciary responsibility to your clients. It's also been shown... fee compression too. What's up? Fee compression. Fee compression as well, right? I can access a Vanguard total market index for a few basis points that protects me when I'm a registered investment advisor because I'm able to say, well, I'm offering the best product at the lowest cost. Of course, I would buy this for myself, right? Um, that narrative is largely protected. And, and I like to joke, and it's not entirely joke, it's more like a you know, crying clown sort of dynamic. Um, Albert Einstein's famous for the expression, you know, the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest. <laughs> I actually think he's wrong. I think the most powerful force in the universe is liability avoidance. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, so if you create conditions under which those who are offering 401k plans, those who are offering retirement services have been offered a liability get out of jail free card by, you know, presenting options that that uh, steer people towards these passive vehicles, you get exactly what you would expect. And so that's the threat from the IBM thing, because then if Correct. IBM's plan goes further and yes. it gets adopted because the incentives and the structural incentives shift in that direction, suddenly the whole thing changes. And of course, it doesn't change all at once or maybe does it. Is there a risk that, that this adoption could take place in somewhat of a, a quicker fashion than we're envisioning? But I, it would seem to me that it would take some time for IBM to prove proof of concept, proof that they can sell it to their employees. Um, really prove the benefits to it, which I think are pretty intuitive and obvious, but still yeah. it takes a little bit of a time for that to work through, but eventually other companies start doing it. That removes a lot of this bid, the passive bid in, in, from the stock market, from the equity market. So this is exactly, exactly you know, what I've been concerned about, right? Is if, if you accept the theory that introducing a mechanism 
And remember what passive actually is. I just want to pause for a second there, right? So passive, this language that exists is, you know, like, well, they're passive investors. They're not actually participating. They're not influencing stocks. They're just mimicking everybody else's behavior, right? That's built off the work of Bill Sharp's 1992 paper, or 1991 paper, The Arithmetic of Active Management, which contains a little noticed footnote, right? Defining what a passive investor is as somebody who never transacts. Um, you know, the, the, basically the sole contribution that I've brought to this whole process is saying, hey, wait a second, if you're receiving flows, by definition, you have to transact. So these are not passive investments. What they are is the world's simplest algorithmic or systematic investing scheme, which simply says, did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell, right? And much like a drunk consumer, um, you know, if I'm given cash and buy, just intuitively, you know that that has to raise the price of equities or the valuation of equities and assets relative to a thoughtful, considered approach that says, are they attractive? Are they unattractive relative to cash? Right. And we can actually see this in the data sets. We can see this in the behavior of assets. Um, and so, you know, when you have that bid, as you're describing it, it causes this inflation and again causes the largest stocks to rise relative to the smaller stocks. It causes momentum to be reversed. Why? Because the next and dollar perception comes too, in. like we started out, right? People think right. stocks are incredibly safe because yep. it seems like they're the safest instrument out there. It, it distorts everything. Absolutely. It's hugely, hugely distortive and it's built on very flawed theories of how markets actually work. Right. So the the entire theory that markets are information based, that you know, you and I <laughs> Um, Discounting you know, mechanisms, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's just kind of silly, right? I mean, we actually know oh. that the history of prices is a history of transactions. It's not a history of information. Right. And it's one of the reasons why, like, when you turn on the news or you, you know, nobody really does that anymore. But, you know, you get the news and it says, you know, the stock market was up today because X, Y, Z, right? And you're like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> that's the most ridiculous line of narrative I've ever seen, right? But It's backwards, we, right? The stock prices go up, and then we try to figure out why. We try to construct the narrative. I think that's exactly yeah. right. And I think a lot of the behavior that we're seeing, actually, for 2023, both from a political framework and from a news-based framework, is actually much more about trying to justify why markets are so strong, right? Even as the vast majority of stocks are actually being hit really hard. Right. Um, if I look at something like the Russell 2000 equal weight. Well, and I think that, you know, just before you're doing that, that's that's what people stocks seem to be going up. Bonds are doing something else. Inversions. We're talking about recessions, banking crisis, all that. And the stock market just didn't seem to care. And again, we're talking about the stock market in general terms. But um, and so, yeah, there has to be some people think that they're taught that there has to be some fundamental property that is causing stocks to discount information that leads to higher prices. Well, I mean, just here, let me actually show this to you. So I'm going to share my screen quickly if I can. And this is, you know, today's picture of a uh, window. There we go. So th this is the Russell 2000 equal weight, right? And I just want to highlight that from, you know, we basically never took out the February 2021 highs marginally you know, broke them in November, but this is November 4th, 2021. We're now almost exactly two years later. Two years. And the median stock is down 36%. The median stock is down. This is one of the worst bear markets in history. And everybody's talking about it as if it's a bull market. Right. So that, it, it's an that's, extraordinary. That's we have to make sense of that disconnect. So there's 
people are talking about stocks as if they're strong when they're actually not. And it's a function right. of everything you just stated. So then the next question is, why are stocks in reality performing so poorly? So what I think is happening is that we're actually, you know, when we talk about money coming into markets or leaving markets, right, it matters who it's going from and who it's coming to. So all the money, more than 100% of the flows that are coming into the market, meaning, you know, all net flows are actually going to passive vehicles, Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, etc. Um, you know, firms that you've never, quote unquote, ever heard of, like Geode Capital, which is the, you know, systematic and, and index uh, uh, variant of Fidelity, um, you know, any number of other players that are out there, every form of separately managed account every form of total return swap, every future, these are all going into various forms of quote unquote passive indices. Again, those indices are not truly passive if they are participating in markets by definition, using the definition of the proponents of passive investing, they can't be passive, right? And so what we actually just have is the world's dumbest algorithm running this show where it's if you give me cash, then buy, if you ask for cash, then sell. On the flip side of that, money is coming out of active managers. And I just want to be very clear. I understand partly why this is happening. There is absolutely a performance disadvantage. Active managers have made a terrible case for themselves in every possible way. They overcharged when they had the opportunity to lower costs. That gave John Bogle an opportunity to drive a truck basically through the excess fees that existed in the industry. It's not quite as you know black and white as that might present it to be. But, you know, guys like Eric Balkunas at, at Bloomberg have a fantastic point when they talk about Bogle and his low fee revolution being absolutely spot on. Right now, um, with that said, like what we've done is we've created conditions under which the money that is leaving the market is going from older people and those who are disenchanted with active investing, hedge funds, etc., that means on average, they are selling small cap stocks, right? Because a hedge fund manager or an active manager who's trying to add value through the information channel, right? The, the whole you know, thing that actually makes the efficient market work, quote unquote, the hard work and process of figuring out what a company is actually going to do, right? They're getting fired and the money is going into vehicles that then skew towards the large cap and momentum. And so we're, you know, like it's just a truly mechanical process that then I would argue even further exacerbated by the fact that we allow companies to go and buy back their own shares in the open market, often facilitated by the cash that is provided by stock option grants, right? So like it just the whole thing has become this circular flow dynamic that is reinforcing a lot of these things. And as a narrative species, right? Exactly as you said, people have it backwards. It's not the information it's the seeking to justify the behavior that we see, right? Um, we're um, always told that the stock market is the primary discounting of economic fundamentals. So yeah. if this, I mean, if the stock market's up, that must mean the economy's good. That's what everybody's told and that's what everybody believes. And financial services to their discredit have done a, a poor job of, of dis dispelling that narrative. In the rest of our conversation, Mike and I go further into the weeds of not just the stock market, but the information paradigm that we get from financial markets, really from pretty much every input that we see, are we getting them all wrong? Plus the societal implications of retirement, something as simple as that. How do all of these relate to the fundamental background that we're experiencing in 2023, trying to make sense of this year and moving forward into next year? 
If you want to see the rest of the conversation I had with Mike, and we really could have gone on for a long time here, but the rest of the conversation is available at Eurodoll University for Eurodoll University members, as well as our DDA subscribers. So if you are a DDA subscriber or a Eurodoll University member, get the rest of our conversation as well as a ton of other benefits. And if you aren't one of those, I highly recommend that you check out a membership or a subscription. Not only will you get the conversation, the rest of the conversation with Mike Green, there's also one with Brent Johnson talking about dollar dominance, as well as all of the other benefits of Eurodollar University memberships and subscriptions. The information for you at eurodollar.university.